Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? And welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, episode 23. For those of you that listen very closely to each and every episode, you'll recognize I've introduced episode 23 twice. But last week was only, or last episode was only episode 22. We're now to episode 23. The next one might be episode 23 again, or episode 24. You'll have to wait and see. Uh, Andy, you just got back from a nice long trip to Colorado, is that right? Yes, yes. Did you struggle to breathe in your old age up in the mountains? I struggled to breathe when I played up there when I was in my prime. So, yes, I struggled <laughs> to breathe this time. I, I got out of breath tying my shoes this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get out of breath tying my shoes every morning in, in my bedroom. But <laughs> Yeah, but it was a fantastic trip, you know. And But, you know, I hate to say this because my family is probably going to listen to this podcast, but... The highlight of my trip was actually visiting the Air Force Academy, you know, and chatting with the guy that oversees uh, the use of combat to train the cadets, you know. So this is a guy that, uh, and he's actually part of uh, my my wife's one of my wife's best friends' family, you know. So we're watching July the Fourth fireworks, and I'm surrounded by five black belts, you know, and you know one of them owns the biggest martial arts academy in Colorado Springs, you know, but Dave, the guy that heads up the martial arts, the combative side, look him up. His name's Dave Durnil, D-U-R-N-I-L. And, you know, the guy is, I mean, he's stacked, he's built, you know, and, you know, you can't, but, you know, just look at him and respect the guy. Kind of like me. <laughs> well, I think we need to pass on that pretty quickly. I wish right everybody there. was on YouTube right now. I could actually see how Andrew looks like. You can see it on our social media too. But it's a good-looking fella. That's that's the truth. But yeah. definitely not be like that guy. <laughs> well, Andy, we had some good memories over at Air Force Academy as a kid. I remember playing in the Pikes Peak Invitational. Those are some of my favorite youth soccer memories, to be honest. We we won that tournament many many times with different teams. You know, and it was one of the biggest tournaments in the country, you know, and and, uh, you know, those fields out there are just absolutely fantastic. You know, you've got the mountains as a background, you know, the fields are manicured, you know, you could eat your breakfast off of the fields, you know, dinner and lunch, you know, just beautiful. Uh, and, you know, it was just a highlight for, you know, vacation, you know, and, and combining the vacation with soccer. You know, that was where I first whitewater rafted. You know, uh, is out at the Pikes Peak tournament. Where did you second white water, water raft? Out at the Pikes Peak tournament. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to pull up some video from the archives for our social media uh, because we've got some footage from my team playing at Pikes Peak when we were kids. But you guys can see Andy in literally the shortest shorts that have ever existed for a soccer coach on the sideline from that footage. So I'll have to bring that out of the archives and, and, and a fanny pack, right? And a fanny pack. 
Yeah. Heck just, yeah, just there out was. of curiosity, did you miss another goal right in the you know in front of goal like you did in the state cup final for high school? No, you played me at sweeper. You know that's in that tournament. So yeah, after I didn't get to shoot. After watching you shoot for years, you know I decided that it would be probably a lot safer to put you at the back. You hadn't you, know? you hadn't built the box soccer courts yet, right? That's right. I so I was just I was just born too early. I'd I'd have probably gone all the way to the World Cup and back had I had the box soccer courts. So. What, to clean the toilets? Whatever it takes, <laughs> whatever it takes. Philippe, what have you been doing this summer? It was, you know, this is you're feeling more and more American now that you're married, right? Like your 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 legal status within the United States is is pretty clearly defined. This was probably a special Fourth of July. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was great. Um, went to the lake, hung out with my wife's family, which honestly I've been seeing them way more often than I see my own family. So I mean, they pretty much became my family here too. So. It's pretty cool. I mean, feels very special, definitely. Yeah, the, the lake and the water in Rio, similar, right? Ah, uh, not really. Oh, okay. I can't. It's not. Yeah, let's let's let let's not get into that. You don't want to do a comparison. <laughs> Compare <laughs> contrast. It's not fair. It's I'd, not a fair comparison. <laughs> I'd really appreciate it in future. You did not bring up the Fourth of July. You know, you, you know, when I'm sitting at this table, that's just a smack in the face. That's an insult. You know, remember, I'm British. So you'd you like know. to continue to have colonized the entire world? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, there's no question the world would be in a better state if the British had murdered another, you know, 100 million <laughs> indigenous people. <laughs> that's too good. Uh, that's too good. Well, hey, let's talk some soccer. Um, last week, we started kind of this World Cup series of discussions connecting World Cup stars and, and, and famous World Cup teams of the past to what we consider to be kind of the core tenets of of a youth soccer program, a youth soccer development program that we think is most important, right? And obviously, having invested a lot of time into our own club, Legend Soccer Club, um, uh, originally based out of Kansas City, but partner clubs across the country, um, we we believe that our approach is 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 as close to uh, the best as, as you're going to find. And we plan to talk today specifically about the leadership function, the leadership piece of. Um, of, of that pillar, of, of that pillar and that important structure that supports a youth soccer program. Obviously, leadership is a giant function of successful players, World Cup stars, successful World Cup teams, and so we're going to interweave those together. But quickly, let's take a moment and kind of dive into kind of the leadership component and how we talk about leadership from a club perspective. We've had a club motto for as long as I can remember that is we want our players to be brave, creative leaders for life, right? Not just brave, creative leaders on the field, but we believe if we create an environment and encourage them and help them and mold them and be role models for them uh, to become brave, creative leaders on the field, that'll eventually lead into the outside parts of the field. And Andy, I remember as a youth player growing up, you spending, this isn't going to surprise anybody, hours after practice sat on a ball with us sat around giving us perspective on life. And I remember distinctly hearing from you, guys, I want you to be the type of soccer player that wants the ball and wants to do something with it and not eager to pass the ball pass the ball or the responsibility to somebody else. And that's what I want you to do now as players as 15, 16, 17 year olds. But later in life, when soccer is over and you're, you know, in the corporate boardroom and you've just got a new job and you're sat around the, the boardroom table and the CEO comes in and says, guys, 
the company's going under. We need a Hail Mary. Someone's got to come up with an idea to fix this problem that we have and, uh, and make it happen. And regardless of whether you've been at that company for 10 years or 10 days, I want you to be the person that's confident enough, that's creative enough, that has the leadership qualities enough to stick your hand in the air and say, hey, I've got an idea. Let's go for it. Not being will- worried about failure, right? This, this intelligent risk aspect. I remember that distinctly as a player hearing that. And I think that's at the core of what we try to do for our players, first on the field, but eventually off the field. Andy, where did this genesis come from? When did you start to think, gosh, I could use my, my coaching energy for so much more than soccer. I assume at 16 when you were coaching the Quarry Rovers when you were a kid, you were thinking just about soccer. When did this become so much more than that? When did it become about leadership for life? When I needed to make a phone call and I needed to pick my mother's lock on the phone with a hairpin. (laughs) That is not the story I expected you to go to. No, you know, I'm being facetious here, okay. but, but, you know, it, you know, it's creative ways to solve problems, right? Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, I need to, needed to talk to friends and I, you know, and, and my mom had a phone lock, you know, that I discovered you could pick with a hairpin, but, you know, so, you know. Which you know, she locked the phone? Yeah, you used to have to pay for all your local phone calls in England when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and it was a that's rotary how dial. Old you are. How many how many numbers were there? Like just Did you three? have to throw in. That's how old you are, really. <laughs> to do, be do fair, you not understand how sensitive I am. To be fair, I had the same kind of phone growing up back home. Well, I, I had rotary phones too. I okay. just don't ever remember them being locked. Yeah. Well, my yeah, mom. My parents okay, so you figured either. out how to lock uh, to unlock the phone. Yeah, yeah. You had to be creative. You know, find a way. You know, to solve the problem. So. You know, and, and I only unlocked the phone when I really needed it, you know, a couple of times a month. But when that <laughs> to, phone bill to came in, game. <laughs> who are you calling in? When, when that girlfriend, uh, when, <laughs> <laughs> when, when the phone bill came in, you know, my mom would, would call up the telephone company and just rip them apart because she knew nobody could have made a phone call. <laughs> and, and I'd be I'd be hiding up in my bedroom listening to her arguing with the person at the phone company, you know, <laughs> Uh, she never knew that I picked that phone. Lock, you know? that's so, funny. So, so that's when you came up with this leadership component of being creative in terms of solving problems. Well, you know, it's just it's just you know ragged edge stuff, isn't it? You know, and uh, you know, but you know, I I didn't really come up with the leadership concept. Um, you know, I I was hit with a bucket of cold water while I was at phys ed school. Is is that the story you're looking for? I was actually thinking you were going to share the John Cutter story, but. The, oh, the John Curtis story. That's a good one. Let's do that. Because, uh, you know, John contacted us, you know, m- many years after, you know, uh, Aaron had left the club. Aaron used to play for me. Seth used to play for, you know, the other guy I ran the club with at the time, Tom Mura, who, who's pretty well known on, on the national coaching scene with, with world-class coaching. And, uh, and, and so Tom and I were running the club. And, and two of, you know, they had three boys. And two of the boys played for you know, uh, Tom and I, and uh, the third son, you know, didn't play uh, with a legend's emphasis, you know, so John came out of the blue just a few years ago, you know, and he, he said, you know, can I come up and chat with you, at, you know, the, the soccer facility, and, you know, John said uh, that Jamie, his wife, and him had, you know, analyzed why, in their opinion, it was that, that um, 
that Seth and Aaron were such leadership-oriented people, and the third-born that didn't play under the legend's approach was go along to get along. And he said they, they broke down, you know, the personality of all three kids, and they said that, you know, that, that Aaron and Seth had very similar personalities to Ryan, the third-born, who wasn't a go-getter leader. And, and they said, you know, in virtually every way, the upbringing of all three kids and their natural abilities were cookie-cut, except for one major difference. And, of course, the major difference that John wanted to point out was that Aaron and Seth, for you know, over a decade, both had the Legends Club, you know, and both had coaches within the Legends Club that were incredibly creative people that, that encouraged Aaron and Seth to go for it, you know, and, you know, and taught them how to be successful when they took players on and tried to score goals. So Aaron and Seth became these, you know, these, uh, you know, get out there on the ragged edge, go for it, win games, leaders, you know, dominate the soccer field. And of course, that, that flows over into life. And this is what John was, was pointing out is that's the only thing that he and his wife, Jamie, could find that was significantly different you know, out of the three boys and their upbringing, you know, because he said they were all very much the same people, you know, when they were kids, you know, but Aaron and Seth went the out there on the ragged edge leadership path and Ryan didn't. So he wanted to, sh and you know, this guy is not, you know, your, your average individual. This guy, you know, ran all the Merrill Lynch's in the Midwest, you know, so this is a really, really successful individual. You know, maybe he's not on the same level as, you know, Jack Welch for General Electric, you know, but he's, he's one of the most powerful business people that I've ever known in my life, and I've known some really powerful business people. And a leader, and a leader in his own right, right? Oh, um, superb leader. Yeah, and Aaron, Aaron, who was on my team, the oldest of the three boys, started his own, like, company that has done really 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 well and he's currently living in Alabama Seth their second born is in Colorado last I heard as a as a pastor a youth pastor leading a big um, youth congregation congregation so a leader in his own right for sure the, the the thing like I've heard you tell that story numerous times and and usually it's followed up with like that was like a moment where I recognized that I needed to write a second book legends for life needed to be written because it, it, we need I needed this is you telling it and me retelling it, but I needed to get down on paper why it is that teaching the game this way develops leaders at a much faster clip at a much greater ratio than teaching the game the traditional way. And so I want to draw this comparison for those that are listening. Growing up for us in Kansas City, St. Louis was kind of the, the, the big hot, the big dog on the, the Midwest soccer scene. And I remember distinctly both in club games and in high school games playing against St. Louis teams. And it became this, this fantastic approach of sideways and backwards passing. Sideways and backwards, sideways and backwards sideways and backwards and they would keep the ball for such long stretches of games uh, but never taking any risks sideways and backwards sideways and backwards sideways and backward and as I as an adult and I look back on that I recognize that being a scenario and and one and two touched almost exclusively right never long long possessions individually on the ball I look at that as entirely risk averse approach to playing the game and one in which you're always eager to pass the responsibility 
nobody when the chips are down are saying, give me the ball, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to make something happen. And so much of our traditional soccer landscape is one where it's built around not taking risk unless you're in the you know the in the opponent's penalty box and 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 built around always passing the responsibility give it to somebody else give it to somebody else and i think that that develops very <laughs> vanilla soccer players that eventually become very vanilla members of society that are completely opposed to taking intelligent fast-paced risk and to go for it and our society has moved forward entirely by people willing to take risks people willing to go for it being people that are not scared of failure so it's a very interesting perspective because um you know obviously there's many different ways to play the game uh but i'd like to introduce you to a different perspective even on passing soccer that was provided to me during my phys ed degree by one of our lecturers Werner mills and you know this story, but the audience doesn't know this story, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've heard this story. Um, but, you know, we're a group of first-year students, and, uh, you know, it's a teaching college, and, and the college was famous in Wales, the best phys ed school uh, in, the, in the whole country of Wales, which is about the size of a postage stamp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we were the best in the whole country. You know, and, and <laughs> And all 5,000 of us. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's north of 3 million, but, you know. Oh, okay, forgive me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So about the size so of Kansas City. Yeah, so smaller than all World Cup cities in the U.S. Except, except Kansas, Kansas City. City. <laughs> Did you guys hear that Kansas City is hosting the World Cup in four years? Oh, sorry. And, and, um, but, but Vernon Mills was the lecturer, and he brought the whole year in, 76 people, and, uh, and, you know, and he said, what we're going to do is we're going to evaluate the major components of sport. And so, you know, we spent the first semester picking the major components of sport and ranking them. Uh, and then, you know, we chose the first 15 components that, that we'd picked because we probably discussed, you know, 25, 30, 45, 50 components of sport, you know, that, you know, that were positive and negative, you know, but obviously we're working towards the positive. And, uh, and so in the end, we picked 15, and that was the goal, was to pick 15 components of sport. And what I mean by this is, you know, uh, strength, for example, speed, uh, flexibility, you know. Uh, but ultimately, um, the 15 components that we picked that we wanted to study and analyze, um, you know, were, were boiled down into you know, um, uh, the second half of the year, the second semester, we had to decide how to rank the 15 components that we had picked based on their importance in life. You know, and so, so you know, then it became uh, a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a wrestling job. You know, but while we were doing that, we also had to decide which of these sports, obviously in the British school system, which, you know, it didn't include American football, but, you know, there's a close relation to American football, rugby, you know, that was included, you know, and we actually had to rank the, the sports, you know, based upon um, the 15 components of sport that we'd selected, you know, and, and, you know, and then we, you know, we had to um, argue our case in front of the rest of the year, you know, and of course, we all wanted to um, promote our own sports, you know, the soccer players wanted to promote soccer, Rugby players wanted to promote, you know, rugby. 
and you know threatened us and and they could beat the crap out of us if they wanted to so that was really serious you know and the netball players wanted to promote netball yeah yeah and you what's know. netball <laughs> <laughs> netball is, is a female version of basketball, oh. you know, and if if you wanted to stay on the good side of the girls on the course, you didn't ever insult, you know, the, the female I sport. Le- I legit didn't know what it was. And, and all footballers wanted to stay on the good side of the netballers. <laughs> all males wanted to <laughs> yeah. um, Anyway, you know, to, to you know, let's not get into the you know the girls that played netball. I dated a couple of girls that played netball while I was in college. We'll cover that on the uh, after hours podcast. <laughs> the after hours. <laughs> we should actually do one today. <laughs> I think I know what you're referring to. <laughs> but but um, it's got different intro music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, anyway, long story short, you know, um, we we picked fifteen components of sport and then we ranked them, you know, one through fifteen in terms of, um, you know, what like the whole year perceived. endurance, d- intelligence. What are some of the components? Teamwork. Teamwork. Well, you know, and this is this is where it gets you know really interesting because, the, you know, the in the final analysis, the top three components were. You know, and, and listen carefully to this because this is really important. Teamwork, um, leadership, and situational awareness. You know, that ability to think on your feet, under pressure, come up with not just a solution, but the best solution. You know, the solution that allows you to, you know, if you like, survive, you know, when you go to war. And that's going to be, an, you know, another thing that we're going to discuss here because I just spent a number of hours with the head of uh, the, the combative side of the United States Air Force Academy. But let's get back to our, you know, our, our, our year-long study in, in sociology of sport. You know, and so after we'd picked the top 15 components uh, and we had identified you know, the, the top three components, um, Vernon Mills, the lecturer, threw a bomb into the room and he said, okay, he said, what we've got to do now is we have got to justify our own sport as being the best sport, you know, taking into account these 15 components. So now it was soccer versus rugby versus netball. And we didn't want to upset the netball players, you know, because we might want to date them. So, you know, we had to tread that... (laughs) That fine line between arguing a point. And you were afraid of the rugby players. Oh, yeah. They could beat the living daylights <laughs> out of the poor little <laughs> soccer players. <laughs> so if they caught them. It, it was quite funny. You know, it, it wasn't funny, but I was at the Air Force Academy, and, uh, and, and one of the instructors um, had a cauliflower ear. I don't know if you know what a cauliflower ear sure is. Sure do. You yeah. know, and you know, and, uh, you know, it turns out he was a wrestler. You know, and that's a, that's what messed up his ear. You know, is the constant contact in the grapple. You know, and you know it, it changed the whole physiology of his ear. You know, and we had a whole bunch of rugby players. You know, that got cauliflower ears in the scrum. So th- you know, these days a lot of scrum players wear skull caps. You know, with padding on their ears. Back in those days, they didn't. And if you were a flanker which meant that you were on one side of the scrum. I, I particularly remember a player called Jeremy Evans, and he played flanker for the, the international youth team, Welsh you know, national youth team, you know, and he had a cauliflower ear on one side and this perfect ear on the other side. You know, <laughs> and it, because he only ever rubbed up against one side of the scrum because he played one side flank in, the, you know, in that position. 
you know, and so, but I digress, you know, we're going off. off this the is the first time I've ever heard an English fellow with an English accent say cauliflower because it's cauliflower year. <laughs> I've always known it as cauliflower, but I, that butchering my language is a whole other topic. Perfecting it. Yeah. <laughs> it. Oh I would dear. argue that I'm perfecting it. But. <laughs> All right. So now we're arguing what sport is the best of the British sports based on specifically the f- top 15 components that they group collectively came up with. Right. Exactly. You know, and, uh, and so, you know, n- now it gets personal, you know, because it's soccer versus rugby versus the other sports. And, and so, uh, everybody had to get up and, you know, put forward their thesis as to why their sport was the best. Rugby's better than soccer because of their leadership is an argument a rugby fellow would have made. Yeah, you know, or maybe rugby is better than soccer because it's more physical. You know, you you probably going to get bruised a lot more, yep. and so you know you're going to have to come back from you know m- at least minor injuries. It's and better. It's better for developing situational decision making because we have more decisions made. For example, this is when this happens during a scrum. Yeah, you know that might be their argument. Yeah, uh, sure. So yeah. you know, here's what happened. Let's boil it down to its critical essence, as Anson Dorrance would have said. You know. Um, at the end of the year, after discussing, you know, and, you know, some of these discussions almost turned into fights, you know, and, uh, you know, it was only when I realized that rugby players are three times bigger than me that, <laughs> that, that, that I backed down because I would have ended up bruised and blooded in a fight with most of the rugby players. And, uh, you know, but, you know, at the end of this, uh, this second semester, we had to vote, you know, so... Vernon Mills prepared, you know, um, you know, a, a handout, you know, kind of like, you know, political elections over here, you know, and you had to check the boxes, you know. So we checked the boxes based on Vernon Mills' handout, and uh, you know, Vernon Mills being the lecturer, of course, and and uh, he came back the following week and he said, um, "Okay, drum roll, guys," and we all did the drum roll, and you know, and uh, and he said, for the twenty-third year in a row, soccer is the number one sport. You know, of course, as soccer players jumped up, screaming and shouting and cheering, and then we ran like hell because the rugby players chased <laughs> us out of the lecture theater. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when we all got back together, you know, Vernon Mills uh, pointed out that, you know, soccer has um, th- this, this amazing uh, homogeneity of leadership. You know, and so you take those three top, the most important components. Well, you know, soccer has an, an absolute plethora of, you know, those, those moments. You know, so, you know, you, you've got that leadership, you know, moment where you're the player in possession of the ball. You're the quarterback, you know, and you've got 10 teammates that would like the ball, maybe with the exception of the goalkeeper. You know, and, but, you know, everybody's screaming and shouting at you and you've, you've literally got the whole game in your hands. You know, and how you go is how the team goes. You know, if you make a wrong decision, we lose possession, the other team might score. You know, and, you know, you do something incredible, we might score. And there's everything in between, a simple pass, you know, et cetera. You know, so, so that, that leadership component is huge in soccer. But then the teamwork component is also huge. You know, and, you know, you might be a, an American football fan, you know, but there's not a lot of, you know, individual leadership in American football. You know, who gets to be the leader in American football? Quarterback. The quarterback. The quarterback. You know, and they get the ball on every single snap. That doesn't happen in soccer. 
Even Diego Maradona had to you know, only get his fair share of possessions. What he did with them was incredible, exceptional, but he got his fair share. You know, but uh, you know, there's American football players that go through the whole game. I don't understand why they play it, to be honest, because they go through the whole game and what don't they touch? The ball. The ball. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys, wise up. You know, you're playing a game, the central component is the ball, you know, and most of you aren't even touching it for the whole game. You know, it, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely, the concept of American football is most of the players don't touch the ball. <laughs> so, you know, how can you be a great leader, you know, if you don't actually have the key thing that defines your ability to lead? You're a soldier. You're a foot soldier, yeah. yeah, you're, yeah. you're cannon fodder, you know, for the, the, the big guys, the quarterbacks. You know, the wide receivers. And you know. for all of the offensive linemen that follow the show, Andy lives at. <laughs> <laughs> Rugby players. <laughs> team guys, team guys, players. I just want to say to you, offensive line out there, I know you're not dumb. You know, you just got fooled into thinking that it was a good game to play. You know, and so the blame isn't on you. I'm not blaming you. You know, and so please don't come around my house. But we'll put together an, uh, a heavyweight o- o- over 30 soccer team, and Andy's going to coach it. So we'll teach you the drag Maradona. You know, as a little aside, you know, I used to coach one of Will Shields' kids, you know, and, and uh, Will Shields was, you know, all everything. And he For was, the Chiefs, yeah. Yeah, you know, lineman, soccer god, you know. And, and uh, Will had lost a lot of bulk by the time I coached his kids, you know. Um, but, you know, he was still huge, you know, <laughs> just... A massive, a massive unit, you know, and a nicest guy you'd ever, ever wish to meet, you know, but, you know, just a massive, frighteningly massive unit, you know, and, and so um, it's, it's a different beast. So let's look at the, you know, the, the components that, you know, we decided as a group with one, two and three, you know, one being obviously teamwork, you know, one being leadership and the other being situational awareness, you know, and um, you know, we, we dealt with a leadership approach in as much as, you know, soccer is very fair in terms of sharing out the ball. So you get the opportunity to be the ball carrier, to be the quarterback. Everybody on the team gets an opportunity to somewhat of a relatively equal degree in the game to be that quarterback. You know, and, and so we're all fairly homogenous in terms of the opportunity to do things with the ball. You know, so it's a great sport for leadership. Obviously, because of that, it's a great sport for teamwork. You know, but the situational awareness is, is, you know, the the thing that I really like to focus on because in soccer, it's the most open of all sports. The most open of all sports means it has the greatest number of variables. Mm -hmm. You with me? No, 100%. Yeah, so when you get the ball, you know, I can literally kick the ball 50 yards up into the air if I want. You know, I can kick it in any direction. You know, it's 360 degrees, so I have players coming from behind me screaming for the ball, you know, and, you know, and, and making runs. I've got options to go backwards, sideways, or forwards, you know, and, you know, there's, there's less restriction in soccer than in any other sport. There's 11 opponents. I've got 10 teammates. I've got to make all of these decisions. I've got to decide whether I want to, you know, dribble with the ball, you know, whether I want to pass the ball, whether I want to shoot the ball, you know, I've got to make all of these decisions, you know, and I'm literally the quarterback, you know, on a, on a significant number of occasions, you know, during the game, I am the one that dictates how the game goes for my team. You know, so, you know, this situational leadership is really important because when we get the ball, we've got more decisions to make in soccer than in any other sport 
in world history. You know, so it's the most open of all sports. And let's go to the converse, the most closed of all sports. We, de- we decided while we were discussing, you know, openness and, and, you know, the closed aspect of sport. What would you think is the most closed sport? Cross-country skiing. Yes, it is. And, you know. Wait, really? I wouldn't have got that up front. In those days, you know, we didn't do it in England. So it wasn't even on our radar. But when you do cross-country skiing, you're basically on your own. It's you versus the snow, you know, and, you know, you're, you know, you're literally wrapped up. You can't even communicate with anybody. You know, you're, you're wrapped up against the cold, you know, and it's just you plowing forward on your skis, you know, and, you know, basically trying to beat the clock, you know, to get to your destination. Because, you know, they don't race against each other. They race against what they perceive to be the time they need to get in order to win. You know, so it's a, it's a totally isolated sport, you know, and, you know, and, and you can't do anything in terms of interacting with anything but the landscape and your skis on the way. So we decided that was the most closed sport and soccer was the most open sport. Well, inevitably, if we've got the most open sport in world history, then our leadership component, if we've got the ball, has to be massive. And if we're sharing the ball evenly, then everybody gets to... Access to the leadership. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, and, and this was a revelation because you know, I had never known that we, you know, we being soccer players, had the best sport. You know, I just loved it. You know, but you know, when Vernon Mills revealed that my sport, the sport I'd grown up loving, that my family loved, you know, and played to a high level, was the number one sport, you know, for solid intellectual reasons, it all of a sudden made sense that why it's the world's greatest sport. Are you following me? Because sure. if, it, if it's got all of these components, you can be, uh, you know, a wide range of different individuals and still get a ton out of the game. You know, so, you know, you don't have any speed, you know, but you compensate with skill, you know, and so you can bring a ball down, you can pretzel a defender with a quick move, make a great pass. There's a place for you in the midfield where your lack of speed isn't going to be exposed terribly, you know. So, you know, you can have all of these deficiencies because the game is so broad, you know, in its challenges and its expectations. There's a place in soccer for virtually anybody. So we've, we've identified and made the case for why the sport specifically is the best sport um, and specifically as well as it aligns to the leadership component, which is the topic of today's episode. But specifically, legends soccer or the way in which we teach the game, we would argue, is the best method for teaching and developing leadership. And I think before I pass it to you, Philippe, I think a point that I want to make is I think that a big piece of that has to do with the um, the the role that the way that we teach the game plays in developing self-concept, right? Like a leader has to have a high self-esteem. A leader has to have a, a, a high degree of self-belief that they can do it. And I don't think there's a better way of, of convincing kids that they can do it than putting a ball at their feet and cheerleading them on the sideline to do these fantastic fakes and moves that deceive the opponent and create off of the dribble. Once a player can do that, right? Once they have this 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 enormous self-belief in their ability to create off the dribble, then it's so much easier from a leadership perspective 
to believe that you can do anything else. And it's so much, you're so much more likely to be one, willing to take, take risk, but to say, give me the ball. I can do it. I don't need to pass the responsibility on to anybody else. So, so why are you just looking at Philippe? You know, I mean, you're not looking at the Englishman. Why? It's I mean, to let you know on, on a subconscious level that I'm going to let Philippe talk next. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't what I expected you to say. And because he's Brazilian. <laughs> oh, and, okay. And, and we're, we're weaving this into the World Cup, right? And Brazil has won five World Cups. And I know Philippe has uh, been chomping at the bit to talk about some of the greatest leaders of those Brazilian teams and, and talk about kind of the components that make up their play and their leadership value and how that relates to the success those Brazilian World Cup teams had. Um, Philippe, do you see it the same way that I just presented? A hundred percent. When you're talking about the the passing, uh, soccer and sideways and backwards, all I can think of, it, it, it's for me, it's just beyond um, just passing the responsibility away. It's also a way of let's wait to find an easy way out to solve this problem because we are not willing to take the risk and actually go for it and try to solve it. So I'd rather wait and wait and wait to try to find the easy way out. But guess what? In soccer, sometimes you play a weaker team, you might find the easy way out. But in life, a lot of times you don't, you can't find the easy way out. The easy way out doesn't exist. So the having the willingness to take full responsibility for it and you know taking the risk. And, you know, deal with the consequences of the risk. You know, transitioning defense, win that ball back, and then go for it again. That's, for me, I mean, the, the pillar for soccer to become a great soccer player and a great leader on the soccer field. And, I mean, there's nothing better than a sport. And as we just heard that fantastic story that is one of my favorites, soccer is the best sport to teach that vehicle. So, um but yeah, I mean, just and, and we're we're talking about soccer played the ordinary way. Yeah, not even not even the legends way. Not sure. even our way. Yeah. You know, so so we're talking about what Vernon Mills identified. You know, is soccer played the English way? You know, <laughs> which you know, and I hate to say it. What you are know, you giggling for, Philippe? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, you know, but let's be really honest about this. Soccer played the English way is terribly boring. You know, and it hasn't been anything like as successful. As soccer played the Brazilian way. And, you know, whilst I love you as a person, I kind of hate you for that, Philippe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but not sorry. (laughs) I want to take a a brief moment and overcome the objection that maybe some of our listeners are currently having to, 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 or a gut reaction negatively to when I say passing the responsibility. A pass is a pass the responsibility. Like, don't be small, small minded in perspective and think that I say anytime you pass the ball, you're passing the responsibility. There are are fantastic passes that thread the needle that are penetrating passes that create and those are not passing the responsibility that's putting the team on your back and saying look what I can create for the team but sideways and backwards passing entirely risk averse approach to, 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 to passing the ball and moving the ball around or pattern play entirely where it's all rehearsed that specifically is passing the responsibility and so there are plenty of passes that are done on the game that are fantastic and wonderful and all about leadership and taking risk those are the passes that we should be looking for more of and the sideways and backwards pre-rehearsed patterns um, that exist entirely too much in this game those are the ones that i'm being negative about when i say that it's about passing the responsibility well you know it's it's accountancy versus being a movie star 
you know you know you can move the x's and o's around you know and and you know the, the coins you know the money around you know and you know you're still going to be a little gray guy in a little you know a little office somewhere you know in you know and you're not going to be out there in society influencing things you know and you know or you can be the star of the show you know it you know you can be you know tom cruise whether you agree with his religious views or not you know you can be that absolute superstar the you know even if you don't agree with his religious views you just have to watch him you know he, he's you know he's magnetic and, and and you know this podcast is on the rise. Our listenership is growing infinitely, and it's large part because of the controversy that Angie brings to every episode. But so far in this episode, he's offended rugby players, football players, and now all the accountants. <laughs> Andy, you're screwed. Have I have I not mentioned people that come from Raytown in Kansas City? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to mess us with us Raytonians. <laughs> oh, it's a Raytonian now, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, like an Etonian? You, you know, is it, you know, this is, you know, you know, you're really trying to make your, you know, your, your city of origin something other than its, its ugly roots, well, right? Well, let's just say that there's, there will be an episode in Coaching Inside the Box After Hours that covers the after hours of Raytown at some point. Philippe, talking Brazilian not. World Cup stars, leaders, um, uh, who sticks out to you the most as being somebody that just really had it from a leadership component perspective? Um, it's really hard because I think um, in all those World Cups, the leadership factor was massive. To be honest, the one that I felt like that maybe there's not a single figure I think 58, we had Pelé and Garincha in the same team. I mean, and you had Newton Santos, DD. I mean, just incredible players. And Pelé was only 17 years old. Um, he did score two goals in the final at that age, which is mind blowing. But I mean, he and did one it. brilliant goal. Yeah, and he didn't even. But he didn't even start the first games. He just obviously he was 17, so he just got called up as like the new kid but in training he just killed it and, and he showed leadership days. he showed this willingness to correct. take the bull by the horns and make correct but didn't then, know any different and yeah. then but here here's the thing so but besides that i think the other four world cups i mean 62 Gar pelé was hurt that's a major thing garincha literally that world cup it's unbelievable what he, he did he literally got a, a, a red card I think in a semi-final and they changed the rules for him to play the final he did not get suspended because they're like we cannot not have this guy play the final at that point soccer is still a growing sport so they needed the attraction so he played the final um, and anyways um, so you Brazilians are cheats well FIFA is a cheat let's not get back <laughs> to 66 Brazil's had it all their own way for too long you know we've got to find Achilles heel to the Brazilian <laughs> game Let, so, let's not, so that's it let's not get back to 66 yeah. what happened in that World Cup final but anyway but I so you're going to rain our parade right our one successful World Cup and, and you're going to rain on that you know that's cruel Philippe <laughs> That's All right, I'll, I'll let you have that one. I'll <laughs> let you have that one. Um, but I think there are three guys that stand out the most for me, and then one in particular. And the three guys are Pelé, Ronaldo, and Romario. Um, the fact that Pelé was 17, his first, and scored all these amazing goals, and but then he was hurt in 62. Then in 66, he got abused physically and got the the 
crap kicked out of him in the World Cup and got hurt in the second game and didn't play the rest of the tournament. Then he comes back at 1970 and he's like the number 10, the captain. I mean, he just did everything. And I mean, he had a lot of talent around him, but he was the leader. He 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 made the team play and like it's I mean everybody knows what that the national team did and I mean Pelé his story transcends soccer I mean he he literally stopped a war I don't remember what country specifically but uh Santos or uh was or or Brazil I don't remember uh at that time they did a lot of like traveling around the world for people to see Pelé like they would sometimes not play the local leagues and stuff and they would travel around the world playing the Real Madrid's, the Benficas, uh, the best teams at the time um, for entertainment of the world. There's that country in Africa was in a major war and the two like civil like groups that were fighting against each other for the, the country, uh, they agreed to stop the war for three days for Pelé to come and play soccer. I mean, if that's not a leader, I I, I don't that that. It's can can we introduce him to Putin and Zelensky? <laughs> 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 I'm sure they know that it's actually funny because I read uh, a while back that that people knew more about Pelé than Jesus. He was more famous than Jesus at one point. Uh, so I mean, that's just mind-blowing and I got a lot of quotes here from other players you know talking about how great he was not just saying oh he was the best player it's like he wasn't a player he was from another planet or you know uh, Bobby Charlton said that it seems like soccer was invented for Pelé you know and just many many quotes but I'm not gonna get into those otherwise I'm gonna be talking as long as Andy does and I'm sure yeah, we can't have is there something my, wrong with my, that? My, no I was actually <laughs> gonna make a compliment saying that my accent is not as you know sounds doesn't sound as good as but yours. how do you say cauliflower so I so, cannot even pronounce that so how come you've had all these women chasing you since I've known you if your accent's not as good as mine have you seen <laughs> Philippe's backside <laughs> <laughs> After hours episode content sneaking in again. You know, I have to be honest, I've not looked at his backside. <laughs> you know. It's because you haven't played against him. When you play it's, against him, that's all you see. It's, it's not about the accent, it's about the content. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, but yeah, so that's, I think that that covers Pelé, you know, all these great players talking like that about him like that and all the things he accomplished. Then we go to Ronaldo, 2002. His story starts before that when uh, 1998, he was the best player in the world. He was only 21, 22, but he had already won the Ballon d'Or. Everybody called him the phenom for all he did in Italy. And before the World Cup final, uh, the night before, he has a seizure in a hotel. You know, they all the players run to his room and all, pretty much save his life. And then he goes to the hospital and he spends the whole night there arrives at the final he wasn't even he was cut from the game and he made the coach play him uh which pissed off the guy who was playing in his spot but anyway that obviously that final didn't go the way brazil wanted and ronaldo was very criticized about that and people were like oh he was just afraid and blah 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 blah, blah. and it was something serious that happened and probably was emotional but you know it's it happened and 
after right after that he goes back to Italy he kills it and then he blows his knee the first time from that point on he didn't play soccer for two and a half years get, got back straight into the World Cup and he was the top scorer and we won the World Cup I mean that's just fantastic Ronaldo became a hero in Brazil in ways that he not even Pelé could 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 be could ever be because of the personality he was and because of how much he influenced uh, the other kids in Brazil and the whole country and you know he still does it to be honest you know the end of his career he came back to play in Brazil he played for Corinthians and Corinthians was going through a really tough period and just the fact that he showed up and started not just playing but in the back backgrounds helping with the management of the team and all that the team exploded. It's now in the last 10, 15 years been one of the biggest powerhouses in South America. So just the ton of stuff that he did and how players talk about how they looked up to him. Like I have, again, not going to go through quotes, but how Messi, you know, uh, looked up to him. Like the way Zlatan Ibrahimovic talks about him, it's kind of, you know, uh, uh, not awkward, what's the word, creepy like about how much you loved him and you know seeing these stars recognize one figure as somebody that made them love the sport and made them be who they are that that's a leader that's a leader but these guy but, I'm but, but why was he so respected as a leader why because he every time he was on the field he took accountability for everything. He didn't ask for the ball, he demanded the ball. And the players knew they could count on him because when he got it, he made it happen. So what is it that the great leaders do? They, the make, they make it happen. And they face challenges and challenges and challenges and they never give up and they keep on trying and trying and trying until they succeed and that's what he did everything he went through in his careers with the injuries and literally he was told by doctors you're never gonna walk again and two years later he's winning a world cup for brazil being a top scorer i mean that's just and incredible see, th this is the fdr you know th this is the the churchill component of what we do you know you can't be fdr you can't be churchill until you've carried a team on your back you know and where does it start in life it starts with sports you know, our players go to high school and almost inevitably when they get to high school, they're captains, you know, and they're captains because the coach knows that when the game is on the line, they can carry the rest of the team on their back because they've spent years doing it in our program. Years saying, give me the ball, give me the responsibility. I want it. Watch this. You know, I'm going to win the game for us, guys. You know, and that's what we do. Well, that's the perfect segment to get into my next player, like the perfect leeway for that, and that's Romario. Romario is a player that he, after he had great years I, I in I've got to, you know, do great players have to have a name that begins with R in, in Brazil, Brazil to, it, to be a great we, player? We, we make that joke. Besides <laughs> Pelé, all, most of the great players starts with R. <laughs> Even Kaká is R, because his name is Ricardo. And I didn't even know and, that. And you're Felipe Abreu. There's where it would all that, wrong. Exactly. I always <laughs> told my mom, you should have named me Ronaldo. I always said that. But um, I'm a little older, so I wish my name was Romario. But um, it's just incredible how, how he talks 
how he talks openly about what he's going to do, what he would, and he did it. So Romario, very strong personality. In fact, he says that he would never be a coach because he would never want to deal with a Romario. Um, and <laughs> he... Maradona was the same way. He in <laughs> When he... Before the World Cup that Brazil won in 94, we, 1990 we lost to Argentina in the quarterfinal. Everybody criticized the, that national team. It was like a fiasco to Brazil, for Brazil. You know, we hadn't won since 70, so it was 24 years without winning the World Cup. The longest period that br since that Brazil spent without winning the World Cup. Um, and Romário was not getting called up for the national team. And he was the best player. He won the Ballon d'Or playing for Barcelona. I mean, he was killing it in Europe. And he wasn't getting called up because he openly talked crap on the CBF, which is the, the entity that runs Brazilian soccer and the national team, about the coaches. He would openly talk about everything, what he thought. He never, never backed down. And, but then... See, that's the problem with you Brazilians. Like, you know, you don't even recognize this, but you really hurt my feelings just a minute ago. Because, you know, you said it was 20-something years since you'd won a World Cup. <laughs> Do you realize it's been 56 years since England's won the World Cup? And you just stomped on my feelings. You didn't care. Because yeah, you know? I don't even put England on the radar for the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Too harsh. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you asked, asked a moment ago, like, what makes them, a, you know, like a leader or a question along that lines. And, like, I think you can simplify it to leaders create, right? Yeah. Like, as we look at what made Ronaldo a, re a leader, what made Pele a, a leader, what made any other player that we've played with, that we've coached a leader, is leaders on the field create. Leaders off the field create. It's that create that that ability to create aspect that that drives teams forward, that carries teams, that drives society forward, that carries society, that drives businesses forward, that carries businesses. And so, from a coaching perspective, I think we can boil it down simply to as we're developing players, as we're creating environments to develop players, are we creating environments and are we are focusing enough on giving players the tools to create and then the freedom in which to do it, to try and to fail? And if we are not, if that's not at the forefront of our coaching philosophy, our coaching structure, then we're doing it wrong. It's as simple as. So, and I would take this one stage further because what you just described was players. You know, and what I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, completely, hopefully make our audience believe in is it's not about players. It's about people, you know, and I'm going to use my own daughter as an example. She was scared to death to come to me. I don't know why, after all the, th you know, the ways in which I've just you know, worked with her over the years. You know, she enlisted one of my older daughters. To, you know, we went out to lunch because she announced at lunch that she was quitting college soccer. You know, and you know, I, I laughed because I knew something was up. They never take me to lunch. You know, they, you know, it's just everything's organic in our family. You know, but you know, this was arranged lunch. You know, so I had a feeling that something was coming down the pipe, and you know, perhaps it was that you know that she was quitting soccer. You know, and you know, so she was quitting her you know college soccer team to go to Florida, to go to Florida Gulf Coast University because she's a vegan, and you know, Florida Gulf Coast is a great place to be a vegan. They've got vegan business courses. You know, but you know, and I said to her because she was you know literally 
you know, in her own mind, treading on thin ice because I'm a soccer guy, right? And I said, you know, you're missing the point here. You know, I didn't want you to be a soccer player. I wanted you to be a leader in life. You know, and so you stepping out on your own, taking the responsibility to be a leader in life, was my whole objective. It was all about that. It wasn't about the vehicle to get you there. You know, that was just the vehicle. Now it's an incredibly important vehicle, and I think it's the best vehicle in world history for getting people, you know, to the leadership level in life. But this is about life, not about soccer. Yeah. Make sense? 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, that. those stories are what makes me love soccer the most. You know, just what soccer can do for a person and those characteristics that arises because you can see in real life, you know. Um, I want to I just want to finish on him because I really think some of the stuff that he said and he did is is just incredible and really ties up with everything we said. So when he got called back up to the national team before the World Cup, it was the last game of the qualifying and we had to beat Uruguay 2-0 to go to the World Cup. So guess what? At that point, they needed him, so they called him for that game specifically. He told before the game to the captain, and the captain tells the story. He's like, today I'm going to make somebody, I'm going to sombrero somebody, which is put the ball over somebody's head, and I'm going to score two goals. So game starts, he makes the somebody and does the sombrero, uh, and the half, the half ends 0-0. Zero, zero. So he goes back at, at the locker room, and the guy's like, Romaro, what happened? And he's like, oh, I did half of my test. Now the other half of the test is coming in the second half. And he goes in and he scores two goals in Brazil go to the World Cup. Now, before the World Cup, when they are preparing, I didn't. that's the only quote I didn't find in English already, so I'm just going to say what he said. He literally said, if we don't win, you guys, and talking about the press, you guys can all put the blame 100% on me because I'm the best player, and if I if we don't win, it's all on me. He said that before going to the World Cup, taking full responsibility of everything. And, you know, Brazil won the World Cup after that. And I wanted to read some of his quotes to go and directly to that. He, after he scored, you know, an important goal, don't remember when, he literally told to, to everybody, when I was born, the man up there, God, uh, pointed to me and said, He's the man. So that's the way he feels about himself. He's he, so he modest, feels like modest guy. he needs to do it. <laughs> and then to show why he's not modest, he says, "Strikers are egotists, selfish. We have to be. I had to be the one to score. If I had one percent chance to score, and the other guy ninety-nine percent, I would try to score because I knew I could do better." Then he said. The coach should always keep out of the way. He's an important figure, of course, but it's, it is more likely to lose a match than win it. Matches are won by great players. And then after his soccer career, he became a senator in Brazil because <laughs> of, and that quote for me tells why. Because I come from the favela, I know about misery, and what it means to make sacrifices. I was also poor and suffered hardships. In my day, unfortunately, nobody reached out a hand, which is why I'm happy to help now. 
So I just think he, as a figure, and he has many other quotes about how, you know, he liked to party and he liked to go out and have fun and he didn't care. You know, he didn't need to sleep. He didn't need to train because he was so good. All he needed to do was train finishing because he didn't need to run and he would never chase an outside back in his life. He just was there to score and win the game. Not just that, but like the every time he was always the one taking the responsibility fully. And even now, he so he got a, a daughter that has Down syndrome, and that's why he went to politics, because he saw that Brazil didn't do enough for those uh, special kids, uh, and he wanted to do it. So he became a senator, and still is, uh, because he wants to do it. He wants to help. He wants to be the leader. He saw a problem, and he, again, outside of soccer, politics, something that Romário didn't even go to school, so he studied so he could take the problem and solve it. For me, that's, I mean, beyond beyond any kind of leadership that I've ever seen. So, so here's an interesting contrast. We hear this about Romário, and there's going to be people in our audience that actually dislike Romário because they're hearing this, you know, because they've heard some negatives about the guy. You know, and they're going to be thinking he's big-headed, he's egotistical, right? He said so himself. Yeah, and that's a negative, right? Well, do we want our kids to have great self-belief? So now, you know, we use different language and we say, you know, we're teaching children to have great self-belief. It's actually making them egotistical because the immature individual, Romario grew up, you know, he had a child with Down syndrome and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and working with, you know, the the learned disabled is is what I was going to do for a career, you know, before I was able to make a living out of soccer, you know, and and I still wonder if I made the right choice, especially working with you guys. But, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but egotistical people, as they become more mature, turn into wonderfully confident leaders in society. You know, it, it's a process, right? So we want to make our players ball hogs. We want them to be egotistical because it challenges them to the max. It optimizes not just their physical skills, you know, not just their ability to carry the team on the back, on their backs and win games, but it maximizes their willingness to lead in life, you know, and, you know, carry society on their backs. Winston Churchill was criticized for being terribly egotistical. You know, but he carried Britain through World War II, and with Britain came you know a big chunk of the rest of the world. You know, to defeat the evil empire, the Nazis. You know, so you know, ego is not a negative. You know, when we're young, we have to optimize our potential. You know, and the willingness to lead is tied strongly into ego, because you've got to believe in order to step up and say, "Give me the job." You've got to have a big ego. You've got to have self-belief to put it in the positive term. Well, I, I mean, I think you're spot on. I, I Just talking about my own self, I was commented numerous times by my peers as an elementary kid in middle school and as a high school kid of how cocky I was, right? Because I had a ton of self-belief. And I think that that, that part, that, that maturation process brings me to now to where I think I'm a pretty good leader, right? Like, And I'm eager to take on responsibility and eager to look for to create unique solutions to problems that present in front of me. And I, and I think that, I think you I think that's well put. And I think the audience, if they spend a minute and think back to 
people that they grew up with or maybe themselves, if if those that are good leaders would have gone through a phase in which they were cocky and egotistical and seen from a negative perspective. But that's part of the process. Now, I'm not suggesting that we celebrate our cocky 17-year-olds, but I'm suggesting we celebrate the self-belief that our cocky 17-year-olds have, and then slowly recognizing that they'll mature, and we can play a role in that from a coaching or role model perspective, and helping them get to a place where they're um, uh, I wouldn't, they still have the same self-belief, but maybe more self-awareness. And, and you're absolutely right, but here's where our club makes the difference, is uh, you can be egotistical, but if you don't have the weapons with which to back up your ego, Bingo. the rest of society is going to shoot you down. Fair. You know, so you have got to be able to produce the goods, win the games, make the big plays, you know, and that's why we're different as the Legends Club is, you know, we give kids the physical abilities you know, the deceptive dribbling skills, the fakes and moves, the range of shooting options and an environment and a culture that demands thousands upon thousands more repetitions of those game deciding skills. That's what we do for children. We give children the foundation for valuable ego. You can convince yourself that you're all that in a bag of chips, you know, but that is damaging ego. You know, if you get above your station in life, the rest of society will drag you back. We talked about in the recent episode the poppy field complex with yeah, girls. I think that's the challenge for British culture is that British culture is always trying to pull the guy that sticks his head up back. Well, I think it's female culture as well. Sure. You know, the poppy field complex is a well-documented psychological complex where females don't like to see you know people of their own ilk getting ahead because you know they've been brought up to be lovers, mothers, and nurturers, but not to get above their station, and that's changing. And, you know, it's, it's put in, you know, the big noses of old white guys like me, you know, out of joint because now you've got powerful women like my six daughters, you know, that are standing up and they're fighting for their rights, you know, and they're going nose to nose and toe to toe, you know, with guys that are six foot six and, you know, heavily muscled and very intimidating. And they're saying, no, you're not going to do this to us. You're not going to take away my rights in life. You know, and this time, more than any time in the past, women are fighting back. And I love it. I absolutely love it because I want to see my daughters be regarded as equals by chauvinistic men. You know, and, you know, and that, there's only one way to make it happen, you know, and that's to beat them, beat the pants off them. Because guys, some guys only respect people that can beat them, Right. Yep. So you have to go to war against them. And I, and I love that like, as we wind this podcast down, this episode down, we're talking a lot about things out, off the field. Because we as coaches, we as mentors of the game, have to recognize that if we're going to be anywhere near maximally effective in our role as, as coaches, we've got to see the game wider than just what happens on the field. And we've, got to, and we've got to see, but, but to the same end, we've got to recognizing that the, the top of the mountain, the summit, where we want to take these players to is, is, to, a, is to a level of a leadership and personal responsibility that's greater than they would get without us and without the game. And in order to do that, we have to create environments. We have to take, we have to take a, a structure and a philosophy and an approach to teaching the game 
that 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 leans into all of those those attributes, those characteristics that we want in 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 our leaders of society. And and those are people willing to create. Those are people that have a, a ton of self belief, have ego. Those are those are people that are that are are willing to take risks and recognize that um, that that failure is an important piece of growth and maturation. Right. And we're not just talking about soccer here. You know, and so I'd like to tell, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg story because I just got done writing my first book and, and, and it was like my baby. I couldn't put it down, you know, so I was wasting time making, you know, little changes that weren't a hill of beans, you know, to, you know, what I'd been working on for 20 years, you know, the first book and uh, until I found Facebook, you know, and then I started contacting hundreds of ex-players, you know, and, you know, and. And I started creeping through their pages, you know, looking at what they were doing. And, and their success smacked me in the face because I couldn't find an ex-player of mine that wasn't successful, you know, that hadn't done something that is regarded by society, you know, as, you know, something special. You know, building a successful business, you know, uh, you know, being just, you know, a really good dad, you know, and, and combining those things, you know, and, you know, being willing to step up into leader, leadership positions. A lot of them were coaching, a lot of them were leading in society in addition to running a successful business and being a great dad, you know. And so so I created a cookie cut message saying, you know, basically, hi, this is Andy. You know, I've just found you on Facebook. Great to reconnect, you know, and then leading into, you know, how much. Do you think the Legends Club was responsible for your leadership attitude in life, you know, and the success that you've experienced that I'm witnessing on Facebook because it's the first time we've communicated in years? You know, just because we're busy people, not because we didn't want to, but we're busy people, right? So we don't do that unless it's put in front of us, like with Facebook, you know. And I got messages back from these guys, you know, are you kidding me, Barney? You know, I hear your voice in the back of my head. You know, telling me to go for it, you know, telling me to do more, you know, basically criticizing me for not taking the responsibility when I made the easy play. You know, even if we scored at the end of the, you know, three easy plays, three simple passes, you know, I, you know you'd bring us in at halftime and say, you were the one that made that first pass, that first easy pass. And you had a chance to beat two people and score. Why didn't you try and beat two people and score? You know, because it wasn't about winning that game. It was about developing that willingness to take on more, take on more, to take on more responsibility, to try and be great instead of being just good. Jim Collins, good to great. You know, so we're looking for the great, you know, not just the good enough, you know. And, and so, so what happened was I realized that, you know, there was a massive leadership component that I hadn't really recognized that goes way beyond what we do with you soccer players. Because what we're asking our kids to do is walk into this cauldron, this competitive cauldron. You know, it's a public coliseum, you know, where you're a gladiator, you know, where, you know, symbolically you die if you lose possession. You know, and we're asking them to take these great risks, this symbolic death of losing possession and losing possession until eventually they can beat people again and again and again because they took the risk, because they got out of their comfort zone. And it's not about the end result of the game. It's not about two to one. It's not about three to two. You know, it's not about whether you eke out a tie against a better team. It's about whether you go in there in every moment of 
of every game, you're optimizing your capability. And everybody's doing it. So nobody is jealous of the guy that is successful. Because in our club, you know, it's a competition of excellence. We're all leading. We're all leaders. And we're all going for it. And we're all building our ego. Because later on in life, we know that if you build your ego when you're a kid, then you're going to be successful in life because you're not going to avoid the big challenges. You're going to welcome them. You're going to know that it comes with failure, and you're going to welcome for failure because you've failed upwards a thousand times. Does that make sense? I've heard that halftime talk a few times. I think. <laughs> no, uh, it's brilliant. And one thing that he said that stuck in my mind is, you know, when you're that leader and you have that willingness to go for in those moments, the one thing that I also think about is when you're that person, you're also able to handle your own failure. Because eventually, even in the passing game, somebody's going to have to shoot. If there's a PK, somebody has to take it. So a guy that is not used to taking that responsibility, when he has to take it, because it's the only thing that can happen at that point, and he fails, he doesn't really have the tools to handle it. Whereas the guy that has done it many times, tried many times, many times, many times, if he fails, he's fine. He knows that he's going to have it again, and he's actually more hungry to have that opportunity again and go for it again to try to do it. Where the other guy might be like, oh, I don't, I, no, I'm not taking the PK. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want that. You know, I don't want the failure. I think you're 90% of the way there. But you used the word, the adjective handle, right? What does handle mean? Handle means carry. Mm -hmm. You know, carry with you your failures. I'm going to change that adjective from handle to welcome, to celebrate your failures. Because who are the greatest successes in life? They are the ones that what? Failed big. Failed big. Failed often. And rebounded and rebounded and rebounded with more power, mm -hmm. which was from the knowledge of failure. You yeah. can't become a deceptive dribbler until you've lost the ball hundreds of thousands of times, taking people on, using fakes and moves, and figuring out what works. Well, we've figured out what works, so we can shorten that learning curve to an incredible degree. We've created an environment that puts them under the pressures they need to be put under in order to shorten that learning curve to an incredible degree. We've created the culture you know, that promotes everybody shortening that learning curve to the greatest degree. And we've also got a coaching philosophy that isn't built about winning. It's built about, about individual risk that shortens that learning curve to the greatest degree. Make sense? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Guys, this was another doozy of an episode. I think we finished really strong as well. Um, those that are listening at home, give us a re review that's helping us kind of grow the podcast and get more out there. Uh, the few reviews that we've seen come in over the last month or two have been fantastic. Um, find us on any social media channel you like, including TikTok. I just started a TikTok for us a couple days ago, um, and so that should be fun. It'll have uh, you know good content from some of these episodes that, that, that we're creating, but it'll also be a, a opportunity for me since I run it to take a piss at Andy and Philippe from time to time. So <laughs> uh, give us a, give us a follow, keep joining, share the word, and uh, we appreciate you more than you know. Andy, Philippe, great stuff today. Thank you guys. Thank you. Adios.